You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage today is John chapter 21. Uh, You can follow along with me, behind me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said said these things to him the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the disciples that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not about to die, but if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who, was written, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. 
Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Wrapping up the Gospel of John today, we have uh, preached 56 sermons through the Gospel of John. That's been, we've been studying this Gospel for over a year, and uh, as we wrap up today, we end on the power of the Gospel, the hope of the gospel. And when we are met by the gospel and met by the mercy and grace of Jesus, the potential that there is there for us to be changed, to be graced, to be transformed. We see that through Peter here. And this last conversation we get to peek in on that he has with Jesus. There's three stages, if you will, that we're going to examine that Peter rolls through. He starts in a place of shame. And we're going to study shame and see how it goes one of two different ways. And then we're going to see Peter be restored and see two different examples of that, how that plays out. And then we're going to see that there is hope for transformation, that he's not only restored, but he's also going to be changed. So let's first look at shame, study shame and understand shame. Shame, uh, a good definition, is just simply disgust with yourself. It's self-resentment, self-loathing. And there's two ways that we typically deal with shame, and Peter shows us both of them. So when you feel shame, one thing we can do is admit defeat. Just cave to it. Look at verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter, catch this, he says to them, I am going fishing, going back to my job, going back to my former life. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught not a thing, nothing. So Peter, he goes back to fishing. This was his life before he met Jesus. Now, put yourself in Peter's shoes. He has seen the risen Christ twice so far. Peter's betrayal, as far as we know, it hasn't been addressed yet by Jesus. So after seeing Jesus twice, there's no reconciliation made. It would only be natural for Peter to assume that there's no coming back from his failure. There's no coming back from his betrayal. So what does he do? He goes back to his former life, his life before Jesus entered into it. And look, this is what shame will produce. When we fail, we think to ourselves this, I've crossed the line, I've already messed up, I don't deserve anything but to live in regret, I shouldn't expect anything more than the bare minimum. We think instead of going forwards, I'm just going to go backwards because if I'm such a failure, what difference will it make anyway? That's the experience of shame, feeling defeated. And then I want you also to notice that in this account, it says that they're fishing at night and they caught nothing. And that you might glance over that as just a historical fact, uh, a reporting fact, which is true, it is. But John uses the imagery of night to always convey uh, something symbolic, which is spiritual darkness, spiritual lostness. Remember Nicodemus back in John chapter 3 comes to Jesus at night, spiritually lost. Here, Jesus, here Peter is fishing back to his former life in the darkness. And to make matters worse, just the cherry on top, he doesn't catch a thing. 
the whole night is a complete and utter failure. So this whole thing, just Peter's going back to his former life, at night, he's fishing, doesn't catch a thing. It just reinforces how low Peter is where we're meeting him. And this is what shame does. It robs you of spiritual joy. It robs you of spiritual confidence. When we lose those things, we lose the will to resist backsliding. And we just drift and drift and drift with no guardrails in place. Anyone here fail before and immediately want to run and crawl into a hole and be left alone and just binge sin? Anyone ever feel that way? Anyone ever experienced that before? That's Peter right now. When our shame makes us feel defeated, that's what we do. Run and hide and isolate and see no real point of trying. That's one way this can go. You can live in defeat. But shame also, it's possible that we sense that it's time to get things right. It's time to get things in order. And what we do, and this is the wrong thing to do, the wrong response to shame is we begin to do penance. We practice penance. Try to make amends with God. Look at verses 4 through 8. This is what Peter does. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And so he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. They cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Okay, it's Jesus. They know it's Jesus now. Now I want you to notice here, look what Peter does next. When Simon Peter heard that it was Jesus, he puts on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. So Peter, when it dawns on him that this is Jesus, he fully dresses himself, throws himself into the water and swims to him while his friends just easily, you know, not so easily, I guess, but they're rowing back. Like, you, doesn't, you don't have to swim. That's not a reasonable option. You could stay in the boat and just row back with your friends. But he decides to swim in full dress, the length of a football field, and the, how he begins is throwing himself into the water. And that's not all he does in verses 9 through 11. Look at, at Peter's other activity here. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. The fish laid on it, bread there as well. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter, he says to the, all the disciples, bring the fish that you just caught. Simon Peter, by himself, went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Although there were so many, the net was not torn so back in verse 8, remember all the disciples, they rowed that boat full of fish back to land. But here at the request of Jesus, Peter alone hauls the net of fish from the boat inland. And John notes that this net was very, very full, 153 large fish. This is no easy task. So these, these details, they're not coincidental. They're not just mere reporting. They're purposeful. Peter swims instead of rows. He throws himself into the water. He hauls the net of fish by himself. What's with all the effort? What's, what's with all the strain? The details are meant to show us that Peter, in response to Jesus' presence, is striving to make amends, striving to show Jesus something, show Jesus that he's really sorry, 
So show Jesus that maybe he's not a traitor. Maybe he's not a failure. Maybe he's not as rotten or helpless as he thought. This kind of strenuous effort, it tips Peter's hand and reveals that he's got something to prove. This is the other response that we make to shame. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and will ourselves to make amends and make it right and prove that we are sorry. Peter here, he believes that maybe I can save face. Maybe I can impress Jesus and gain his favor. Maybe I can meet Jesus halfway. I'll ask you another question. They ever sinned and immediately thought to themselves, to yourself, all right, now that I've sinned and failed, I've got to read my Bible. I've got to go to church this week. I've got to up my tithe. I've got to balance the scales and show that I'm sorry. See, we think doing penance, which is what Peter is doing, is humble. But honestly, penance is secretly very prideful. It's a very proud act because it's our way of showing that we still have it together. That we're not as bad as we could be. What I found to be true is anytime we try to clean ourselves up before God and prove that we're sorry, we are actually just resisting total humiliation. Because if it's true that we are rock bottom, if it's true that we are rotten, that we have failed miserably, we come up utterly empty every single time with all these efforts. If we acknowledge that, then if God has to swoop in and save us, then it, we are, it's utterly humiliating to be in that spot. And so to save face, to make it less humiliating, we just have to build ourselves up, clean ourselves up just a little bit so that it's not as pitiful. So I'm not in need of just this outrageous mercy, just maybe a more, you know, measured mercy. We think, if I do penance, I'm not as bad as I could be. And look, <laughs> um, doing penance, it will have a terrible, terrible effect on you. I mean, it will train you in a really bad way. You might become the kind of person who thinks God helps those who help themselves, and you look down on everyone else who is more of a failure than you. Or you might become the kind of person who does right things for the wrong reasons. In order to pad your sense of self-righteousness, balance the shame-righteous scale in your favor to prove yourself to God, to yourself, to others that you're not that rotten. Or if you practice penance long enough, you might become the person who puts off seriously committing to Jesus because you feel like you have to measure up to a certain moral degree before you're qualified for grace. You might think to yourself, I need to be sober for X number of days. I need to practice this spiritual thing for X number of days. I need to have it together for X number of days before I'm worthy to approach. Shame, if you're not careful, if you're not careful, it will make you either a penitent Pharisee who works nonstop to feel worthy before Jesus or a penitent sinner who can never do quite enough to feel worthy of Jesus. And either way, that's exhausting. Either way, your shame is keeping you back from Jesus. And so that's where Peter's at. Broken by shame. Dominated by shame. Anyone in here experienced that before? Broken by shame? Controlled by shame? So here's the question now, as we continue through the story. How does the resurrected Jesus feel about people who are caught in shame? How does Jesus, who shows us who God is, feel about people who are caught in shame? He loves them. What does the resurrected Jesus intend to do to people, for people who are caught in shame? Restore them. 
This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the power and hope of the gospel. So let's take a look at restoration. First, shame, now restoration. This takes place in two different ways. First, we see that Jesus invites, invites people who are caught in shame. Let's take a look back at Jesus' greeting. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, and man, if that's not symbolic, we can, you know, to ask me later about it, but that's definitely symbolic. As day was breaking, it was all night, day was breaking, Jesus is there on the shore. And the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. That's interesting here. Um, Jesus knows that they've come up empty. Jesus knows that they've tried all night and nothing has worked, but he asks anyway. Nothing makes you feel like a loser more than having to admit it. Another detail that would remind Peter of his failure is how Jesus sets things up on the beach. Verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. They gathered around the fire. Jesus sets up a charcoal fire for them all to gather around. Now, what was the, when was the last time that, that Peter was around a fire? A charcoal fire. Do you remember? The last time Peter gathered near a charcoal fire, he lied and betrayed Jesus three separate times. Jesus knows that. Obviously, Jesus knows that. This isn't like a... Uh, uh, <laughs> Jesus isn't socially inept. Jesus isn't saying of a fire and then Peter walks up and he thinks, oh, uh, oh, that's awkward. Sorry, I didn't connect, make that connection. No, everything Jesus is doing is purposeful. He knows exactly what he's doing. One last thing, one last detail, one last reminder of Peter's failure here that Peter just is staring straight in the face. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all of these, these other disciples? And this would remind Peter of when he told Jesus that even if everyone else betrayed him, he would never. You got to read the Bible and pay attention to details. Everything's important. You got to turn it all over in your head. And the details here are interesting. Jesus is arranging things so that Peter comes face to face with his failures. Why would Jesus do that? He's not taunting him, he's not trying to be mean. Why would Jesus do this, though? It's because Jesus' invitation to restoration finds us when we are in the middle of failure, not before it, not after it, but right in the middle of it. He wants Peter to be honest with himself. Peter, you are right in the middle of a failure. And I'm not inviting you before you did it or after you've cleaned yourself up but right where you're at right now. More on that later. I want to continue to look at the details in the story, though, because it shows us the invitation of Jesus here. So let's continue through the story and see Jesus' intentionality. He situates things now in a way that, listen here, he situates, situates things in a way that recalls previous memories, previous moments he's had with his disciples. So he not only wants Peter and the disciples to come to grips with their failure, but he also wants them to come to grips with some memories, make some connections with memories they've had together. Because he wants them to know without a shadow of a doubt that this is him. It's him, not a ghost, um, not a figment of their imagination. But yes, this is actually him. Verses 6 and 7, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some. They cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, why would John, 
suddenly make the connection after that miracle that this is a Jesus. You know, they put him on the other side, they catch this huge haul of fish, and the light bulb goes on for John, and this is certainly Jesus. Why would that connection be made? It's because this exact thing has happened before. Jesus has done this, performed this miracle for them, specifically years before. In Luke 5, Jesus does the same miracle. The disciples, they toiled all night. They dropped their nets in the water at Jesus' command. And the haul was so abundant that the net began to rip and they needed two boats to carry it back to shore. So when Jesus invites his disciples back into relationship, including especially Peter, when he invites them to come and have breakfast, they accept the invitation knowing that this is Jesus. This is our Jesus because they know it's true. This is a memory they've shared together. What just happened, it's just way too eerily familiar. And that's why John records in verse 12, read with me. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It wasn't a mere coincidence. It was specific. Jesus was tipping his hand to them, showing them this is really me. In the connections, they abound. Okay, the more memories, 13 and 14. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. Now, when's the last time that he took bread and gave it to the disciples, of course, at their last dinner together, at their last supper together, which was a meal where Jesus expressed his love for them and said, you're going to continue to do this the rest of your lives in remembrance of me and my love for you. And he continues and says that he gave them bread, but also fish. When was the last time that they had bread and fish? Of course, when he fed the multitudes, when he multiplied the five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, what's Jesus trying to do there by make that recollection click for them? Well, the significance of the feeding of that multitude is by the end of it, there were 12 basketfuls left over. Each disciple had one for himself. And Jesus was trying to get them a message there saying, you are the new Israel. You are, you are going to be the leaders of this new movement I'm creating called the church. And so the point is here that Jesus brings to remembrance these past times they've had together. And each of those past times, those memories they would message to the disciples his great love for them, his purpose for them, his value he places on them. So Jesus is arranging things so that they know that not only this is Jesus, but this is the Jesus who has always loved us, always valued us, always cared for us. So the point here is Jesus is not waiting Till you get yourself together to invite you. He sees you in your failure, just as you see yourself in your failure. And he says to you, just as he says to Peter, come and have breakfast. I've prepared breakfast for you. Come and be with me. I've prepared a fire for you. And if you can believe it, the love, it becomes more astonishing. Because not only does Jesus invite Peter back into a restored relationship, but he accepts Peter as he is. Verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The word for love there is agapao. It's the strongest form of love in the original language. It's sacrificial love. It's love with no conditions. Do you love me like that, Peter? Continuing, he said to them, he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
But interestingly, in the original language, the word that Peter uses is not agapao, it's phileo, which is fine. It's friendship love. It's friendly love. But it's not no limitations, no conditions, sacrificial love. Jesus is saying, do you agapao me? And Peter says, I phileo you. It continues on and on. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, John, son of John, do you agapao me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you agapao me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, the interesting thing there, in that third instance where Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, is he doesn't use the word agapao there. Jesus uses the word phileo. Peter knows that he doesn't love Jesus as he should. And surprisingly, the third time Jesus asks, he accepts Peter's level of love. And he comes down to Peter's level. Look, we could never love Jesus as he loves us. We could never possibly even come close to matching how much he loves us. And he knows it. And he's okay with it. Jesus accepts us where we are at, not where we will be. He accepts the present version of ourselves, not the former. On fire version of ourselves, or the future improved version of ourselves. He takes who we are right now and what we have to offer. Jesus, he calls us to devotion. I'm not saying that's not the case. He calls us to devotion, not perfection. And you can be devoted to Jesus and struggle. You can be devoted to Jesus and be ripped apart by regret. You can be devoted to Jesus and have failed a number of times. And Jesus accepts us. He knows who we are. He knows who he is loving. He knows who he is in a relationship with. And he's not surprised by our sin. Look, we live in a cancel culture where everyone has long memories of each other's failures. And you always look over your shoulder. But God... All at the same time, he knows our failings completely. I mean, he knows us fully. But at the same time, he chooses to forget our failings as far as the east is from the west. This now is the difference that the resurrection makes. In the Old Testament, there were intense procedures for cleanliness. Remember, if you were improperly worshiping God in the temple, You'd be consumed. If you approached his presence in presumption, you might be killed. Every sacrifice for sin, it was only a covering, not a full atonement. But the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that that great exchange has actually gone through. Our guilt for his perfection, our rags for his riches. Resurrection proves that full atonement has been made and all wrath has been satisfied. So there's nothing between us and God now but love. So Jesus, knowing full well Peter's failings, our failings, he accepts us in our failure, not before our failure, not after our failure, but in the middle of our failure. Why? Because the gospel means that we're covered in his righteousness, we're completely forgiven. So although we're unclean, God draws near to us as we draw near to him. Jesus invites us to accept him. He accepts us in the middle of our failure. And I know this is scandalous. I know that might make some of you really uncomfortable when I say this, that Jesus accepts us in the middle of our failure. But don't confuse 
what the gospel produces with what the gospel is. The gospel is the free gift of righteousness to those who believe. What it produces is righteous people. First God loves, first God finds, first God initiates, first God takes in. Then his love transforms us. Then we become what we are in his eyes. So religious people, self-righteous people, really oppose this, are really uncomfortable with this. Because if God gives away mercy so easily and freely, then what good is their righteousness? If they have to share their status with someone who hasn't earned it, who hasn't done enough, who doesn't have the same effort as them, then that must only mean that their efforts don't mean very much. Free grace, the grace of Jesus, it's deeply invalidating for religious people. So here's what you need to know if you're struggling with this. Your righteousness with religiosity, you know, with self-righteousness, if you struggle with that, you need to know that your righteousness is keeping you away from Jesus just as much as someone else's moral failure. Your perceived goodness is keeping you back from the heart of God just as much as someone's obvious badness. Your self-righteousness is a failure just as much as someone else's moral failure. Strivers, earners, performers miss out on the freedom that comes with the deep acceptance of Jesus. So here's the cage of religion. Religion can't celebrate another person succeeding and receiving grace. Religion can't admit the need for help. Religion always has to work, always be busy, always produce. Religion can't cut someone else slack. Religion, religious people don't know that they've been forgiven and accepted as they are without merit as a gift, so they strive constantly and hold everyone else to the same standard. In other words, if you can't stand other people getting grace, then you don't get the gospel. But invited and accepted people, people who are touched by God's grace, they're the complete opposite. They're not caged, they're free. They celebrate other people, they ask for help, they have nothing to prove, they freely give grace, they're so patient with others, they know they're forgiven, they know they're accepted as a total gift even though they've failed. People who get the gospel live from a place of deep acceptance, not living for deep acceptance. Do you get that? Does that make sense, that distinction? People who get the gospel live from a place of deep acceptance instead of living to always get acceptance and squeeze it out of opportunities and people. People who get the gospel, the grace of Jesus, they're unshackled and unburdened of striving, and they're at rest in Jesus, and they love others without judgment. Jesus invites and Jesus accepts. That's what he's done to Peter. He's restored him through invitation and acceptance. But the gospel produces change. The gospel is that God has loved us. We did not love him. But the grace of Jesus, it absolutely transforms us. We keep on reading and see that this transformation takes place in Peter. It hasn't taken place yet, but Jesus is going to now project his future. What's ahead of him because of the grace of Jesus? Back in verse 17, we're going to see that he redeems Peter's failure. He said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, why do you think Peter's grieved? It says he's grieved at the third mention, the third question. Why would Peter be wrecked by that? Because this is a direct echo of Peter's three-peat betrayal. It's almost like Jesus is situating things so Peter remembers exactly his failure. But the incredible thing is that Jesus isn't doing this to discourage him. He's doing this to reinstate Peter. He's saying, I'm replacing every mark of betrayal with a new call. I'm replacing every mark of betrayal with a call to allegiance. Every failure, the three times you betrayed me, is redeemed with a three-part commission. He's redeeming his failure. Now, redeemed, think about that word. What does it mean to be redeemed? What is redemption? It means that something has not gone to waste. God does this with our failures. By God's grace, our failures become a part of our story. They shape our ministry. They shape our life. But at the same time, they don't define us and they don't get the final word. Instead, God's redemption defines us. God's redemption gets the final word. Failure does not get the final word if our failure is redeemed. And when our failure is redeemed, we are set on a new course for life. That's what's happening to Peter. We see this in his case. His failure does not get the final word. What course, new course, does his life take, 18 and 19? Look at this, his future. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. When you are old, though, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter, we know from church history, is crucified, but at his request, upside down, because he did not count himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. After saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. So as Jesus redeems Peter's failure, he's projecting that Peter is going to be deeply altered and transformed because of this redemption. Now, we know that Peter's not perfect. You read the book of Galatians, Peter struggles with racism. But the grace of the gospel redeems his failure so radically that his transformation is night and day. Remember, our failures don't get the final word. Our failures, they set us on a new course in life. So what's the final word for Peter here? Faithful, not failure. He's going to end it. His life is going to end as a faithful man. New course in life, not a traitor, but a martyr. When you cooperate with God in his redemptive work he is doing in your life, you will undergo real change too. Redemption will have the final word and you too will have a new course in life. Think about this. When God meets you in your failure, God meets you in the mess of it all, invites you and accepts you, and you are actually touched by his grace and moved by his grace, you're transformed by that reconciliation, what happens? Your failures, it all gets flipped on its head. Addicts become sponsors. Fools become wise. Fearful become courageous. Legalists become lovers of others. The list goes on and on, and this is what God has the unique ability to do. He redeems our failures by letting them set us on a new course in life so they don't get the final word, he does. 
Jesus turns Peter's story on its head, and he can do the same with each and every one of you here, each and every one of us here. So point of application, okay? We're all going to fail. If it hasn't happened yet, it's coming soon. If you want God's grace to redeem your failure and make something of it, you have to let him do it. I know it's so simple, but it's so crucial. Don't resist what he is doing. Let your guard down. Let him in. Let him address your wounds and your failures and redeem you. And let then, you, you know that you're experiencing the redemption of Jesus when you let your failure become a blessing to other people, a gift to other people. Think about this with me. In Matthew 15, Jesus, he's criticizing the Pharisees because he says they're the blind leading the blind. Think about that. The blind leading the blind. That's not going to go well. But for those of us who have failed and are redeemed by Jesus, we are supposed to be those who see and can take the hand of the blind and lead them out of darkness. Essential to redemption is allowing God to use your failure as a beacon of light to others. Your failures can be a gift to others. So God redeems our failures. But also, the second way he transforms us is by renewing our identity. And again, this isn't what's happening to Peter in this moment. This is going to happen over the course of time, over the course of his life. But look at this interaction he has with Jesus and John there present, verses 20 through 25. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now just remember, Peter just has heard this outstanding news that he's going to be redeemed. His failure's not going to have the final say. He's going to be a martyr. He's going to be, Jesus is going to make something of him. Pretty outstanding. But then he said, Lord, who is that? Oh, sorry, let me, let me put, go back to verse 20. Let me go back to verse 20 here. Come with me, okay? Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about John? What's going to happen to him? Look at what Jesus says. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter. So the saying spread abroad about among the brothers that this disciple is not to die, yet Jesus did not say then that he was not going to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter has just heard that he will die a worthy death for Jesus and his failures will set him on a new course for life. He turns around and says, well, what about him? What about John? The Peter in this chapter is not the Peter who goes to the cross one day. He's still insecure. He's still worried that someone else may outdo him. He's still worried that he might lose Jesus' favor if John bests him. Remember when uh, James and John's mom asked Jesus if her sons could sit at the left hand and the right hand of Jesus in his new kingdom? In Mark, that, the story is in Mark. And then at the end of that story, it says that all the disciples, when they heard about that, were indignant. They were outraged that his, their mom would do that. Why would they be so angry? Because they wanted that spot. Because they wanted that position, that status. They all secretly wanted superiority. There is a heart, a kind of heart, that is constantly comparing, constantly threatened by others. And that kind of heart it's not been transformed by grace. It's not been transformed by the gospel. That heart has not been made to rest in the finished 
work of Jesus. It still has something to prove. It still is afraid that it might be one-upped. And as long as your heart is not assured of God's love for you, because you don't know that he's invited you and accepted you, you will always have a fragile identity. And so Jesus is transforming Peter's identity from a worried, striving earner into someone who's going to be durable. This is what the gospel does. It changes our identity. So this is the gospel. In Christ, I have nothing to be ashamed of because I am fully known and fully loved. I'm invited, I'm accepted while I'm a mess, and God has redeemed me so my failure does not get the last word, but instead sets me on a new course of transformation. The work is finished, and I can rest. No more defeat from shame. No more penance because of shame. Instead, we're restored, we're redeemed, we're transformed. Let's pray. Father, we agree with your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we agree with David in the Psalms that when we acknowledge our sin to you and do not cover our iniquity, but confess our transgressions to you, you forgive us and restore us. Lord, we acknowledge that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so, Lord, we rejoice in your grace and your mercy. It's so different. It's so incredible. It's scandalous. And so, God, as a response to your mercy, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to you. This is our spiritual act of worship worship because of your mercy, on the basis of your mercy. We want to live a life that is transformed. And so, Lord, we wholly consecrate ourselves to you. We, re- we receive your mercy. We receive your grace. We celebrate your victory over our sin. We acknowledge your power to take us and shape us and redeem us. And so, God, use us and our failures. Use our stories as a blessing and a gift to others. Lord, bring us out of shame, into restoration, and then into deeper transformation. In the name of Jesus. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.